0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, it's Manveen here. Today I'm handing the podcast over to the journalist Emily Sargent for the final part of her special investigation. And if you haven't heard the rest of the series, do go back and have a listen. I can't recommend it enough. She's looking at a fascinating And until now, extremely secretive practice that still takes place all over the country. Conversion therapy. This is Thinking Straight.
2: Last time on Thinking Straight.
3: We need to call it conversion abuse. It's certainly not a
4: therapy. Whatever that practice might be, it devalues that person, makes that person feel that they are somehow wrong, somehow need fixing, somehow broken. It is our vision and mission to raise an army of formerly gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender individuals.
2: It's been over three years since the government pledged to end conversion therapy in the UK.
1: On the gay conversion therapy thing, I think that's absolutely abhorrent and has no place in a, in a civilised society, has no place in,
5: uh, in this country.
2: Since that time, still no ban. So what's
5: actually happened behind the scenes? It was one hour meeting. you heard from three or four people about what they've experienced. I could find you another hundred. It's not enough.
2: You're listening to Thinking Straight. From The Times and The Sunday Times, I'm Emily Sargent. Today, The Ban. Before we begin, a content warning. This episode explores experiences of trauma and abuse, which some listeners may find distressing.
5: My name is Matthew Hindman, and I co-founded the Ban Conversion Therapy campaign to try and bring an end to conversion therapy in the UK. I came out accidentally. Being gay was really difficult and it was something that I really struggled with. I was ashamed and embarrassed, incredibly embarrassed by it. Matthew
2: Hindman came out when he was 24 years old. He grew up in a very religious community in Northern Ireland. As a young person, he even became a missionary.
5: Whilst I was a missionary, I came out and I was asked to go through conversion therapy. I was asked to publicly repent and go through counselling. And thankfully, I was able to say no. But saying no came with a whole other bag of problems. I um, ultimately lost everyone from that time in my life.
2: Years later, then-Prime Minister Theresa May would make a statement that would catch Matthew's attention.
3: We want to see an end to practices like conversion therapy, which is an abhorrent practice.
5: It seemed like a huge win, but then nothing happened. In July 2020,
2: about two years after that promise from Theresa May, Matthew, alongside his friend Harry Hitchens, co-founded an organisation called Ban Conversion Therapy.
5: We came across Core Issues Trust on Instagram.
2: You might remember Core Issues Trust from earlier episodes. They're an ultra-religious advocacy group founded and led by a man named Mike Davidson. Their focus is on helping those who experience unwanted same-sex attraction.
5: And he could not believe that there was this organisation so publicly presenting what they do, basically advertising their services.
4: Good morning. It's very good to uh, have you here today.
2: You're hearing the voice of Mike Davidson here.
4: I'm hoping that we will have a good time as we get further into the issues that relate to unwanted
5: same-sex attraction.
2: Matthew's friend Harry Hitchens posted about it on Instagram.
5: And it just blew up. Loads of like celebrities and stuff were sharing it and people were commenting, people just couldn't believe it. And the overwhelming sense was, I can't believe this is still happening. I can't believe this is still legal. So then we said, look, let's do something. Let's just get this back into the public sphere again. Let's just get people talking about this
2: and what they did was write an open letter to the government.
5: Let's just get as many people of influence, celebrities, activists, whoever, to sign it and share it, get it out into the world. We decided to do this and then 10 days later we, we shared the letter. And in those 10 days we got Julia Lipa, Stephen Fry, Elton John, a load of other people, I think almost 100 people, to say that they support the ban on conversion therapy. So through that, we then launched an email your MP campaign in which we saw over 25,000 people email their MP. From then on, not
2: much seemed to happen. Until this, blink and you'll miss it, mention in the Queen's speech.
3: Measures will be brought forward to address racial and ethnic disparities and ban conversion therapy.
5: It does mean something that the Queen has said, the words ban conversion therapy. That does mean something that carries weight. So we know we just have to make sure that whatever is brought forward is actually effective.
2: The government has been vague on committing to any timeline in terms of implementing a ban. In March 2021, following the resignation of three members of the government's LGBT advisory panel, Liz Truss, Minister for Women and Equalities and newly appointed foreign secretary said the government would be bringing forward plans to ban conversion therapy shortly but then a further consultation and research period was announced by the government to begin in September even though the government has already conducted research that remains unpublished we've now been promised a ban by spring 2022
5: I think we do not need to consult the public. It's basically like doing a little poll to see if we should continue to abuse LGBT people. So my gut makes me think that this is really, it's just really offensive. And I get really frustrated. There's no other way of looking at it. It's homophobic and it's transphobic. So whether or not it's religiously motivated or not, I don't really care, it's still wrong. And I know what it feels like to experience shame. I think if you've never experienced deep shame, you will never understand how much that affects you. And it makes you feel so alone and worthless. And I just, it's hard to even verbalise, rationalise why they should be allowed to continue to do that. I just think it's really awful. Is there any reason that you can see for this having been delayed for so long? I think it's because of how closely connected the church is with politics in the UK.
2: One person who knows quite a lot about the influence of the religious right in UK politics is Jane Ozan.
3: To make a ban on conversion therapy stick, it has to include religious practices. And that therefore, you know, has angered the evangelical community itself in Britain.
2: Jane is herself a gay evangelical Christian. You heard her story in episode one of this series. She sat on the government's LGBT advisory panel until her high-profile resignation in March of this year.
4: Tonight, this Christian has lost faith in the government. Fearing the promise of a ban has been abandoned, she's resigned from her post as an advisor to ministers. As a Conservative herself, she's now quit the party too, believing it's going backwards.
2: Jane's understanding of how the evangelical right is responding to the proposed ban comes from first-hand experience.
3: So I grew up in this right-wing evangelical world which had a lot of contacts with parliamentarians and with people working in the civil service. These were my friends, you know, Danny Kruger, who is the MP, who's leading those who do not want a ban on conversion therapy, a very close friend of mine. And he and Tim Montgomery, who started Conservative Home, and Jonathan Helliwell, who's at number 10, who's the head on faith and community. So all close friends, you know, dinner parties back in the early
2: noughties. Underneath the Houses of Parliament, there's a chapel. It's called the Chapel of St Mary Undercroft. It was completed by King Edward I in 1297. It's where the court and the royal household once worshipped in Westminster Palace. Over its long life, the Undercroft has been used as a storage room, a wine cellar, and, legend has it, as stabling for Oliver Cromwell's horses.
3: There were different meetings in the chapel, in the Undercroft, under the House of Parliament, where evangelicals and charismatics would come together and we'd be praying for debates about abortion or about sexuality, same-sex marriage. was all being prayed for, hoping that God's will would be done. There's a very strong evangelical rump, particularly in this Tory party, that are in key places that are either you know, MPs, Lords, or indeed people within the civil service or advisors at number 10, who are ideologically opposed <laughs> because of their own faith when i joined the panel i advised that we needed to bring faith leaders round the table to talk about the intersection of sexuality gender identity and faith and i gave a list of senior bishops and even archbishops who i thought should be involved with that and i was working across the faiths and there were other you know chief rabbis and senior rabbis none of those were called on instead meetings were held with senior evangelicals well that's just one small tranche of a view and I really fear that the government's you know, own ideology is so influenced by right wing evangelical thinking, which is a small minority of the faith community in the UK and frankly has a very set agenda. And I am very concerned about it because it does not reflect the desires and wishes of most people of faith in Britain.
2: When Jane sat on the government's LGBT advisory committee from 2018 to 2021, she says she pushed repeatedly for the government to meet with survivors of conversion therapy.
3: And I had various meetings that were going to happen and then they were cancelled. And in fact, when I resigned from the panel, the meeting I'd set up with survivors, I got an email the next day saying that was going to be pulled. And I wrote back saying, gosh, you're yet again refusing to meet with survivors. And uh, they came back to say, oh, no, no, okay, no, you're right. we better meet with survivors. So that meeting did go ahead, but it's the only one I'm aware of.
2: I was really curious about this meeting when Jane mentioned it. But because she'd resigned by that time, she didn't attend personally.
5: So I was in that meeting.
2: Oh, okay. So that's very interesting. Tell us about that. This is Matthew Heinemann again.
5: That experience actually really opened my eyes a little bit. You know what, if the government says, oh yeah, we've met with survivors, it makes you think that they've actually invested you know, a fair amount of time in speaking to people. It was an hour meeting. Four or five people shared their stories and they had five to ten minutes each.
2: The government representative was Kemi Badnock, Equalities Minister.
5: The feeling that I have with politicians is that of all the things that they should be able to do, the one thing is when they meet people to kind of be likable, you know, to just leave a good impression on the people they're speaking with. And actually, it didn't happen. There was a lot of interrupting going on, actually, in moments when some of the survivors were in quite deep parts of their experience. And I just thought that, I would never have done that in a million years. There's no way that I would have done that. I would have waited for the right moment. That's fair enough. You might need clarification on certain points. You could see that she was definitely being emoted by what was being said, but it still felt like everything was brand new, which was a bit worrying, having been eight or nine months into this process.
2: I wanted to see what the impression had been of other people who were in that same meeting. So I called around.
1: That meeting for me did very little to reassure me that the government is taking people like myself and many others seriously.
2: This is Reverend Gide McCauley.
1: I am British Nigerian. I was born in London in 1965.
2: He's the founder and CEO of House of Rainbow, an organisation that supports Black LGBTQI plus individuals and allies. He's also a former lawyer, an author, a poet, an activist and a pastor. He was in the same meeting that day, sharing his own experience of conversion therapy.
1: I was raised in a conservative Christian home. When I grew up, I had the mindset that, you know, if I got married to a woman, I would no longer be gay. I've often heard that you cannot be black, African and be gay. You know, homosexuality is not for Nigerians. That was a deeply painful place to be. When I first came out as gay in 1994, it was because I came out to my ex-wife and that led to separation and divorce. I was literally excommunicated from the church. In 1996, I found another church community that I joined.
2: It was in this church that Reverend Gide McCauley was subjected to ongoing conversion therapy attempts.
1: I was actually subjected you know, to scrutiny and questioning. I was called names, I was called contaminated soil, I was called the child of the devil. I was accused of coming to the church to make other people gay. They queried my sexuality, they wanted me to make confessions about who else is gay in the church and whoever has sexual contact with in the church. I remember writing a lot of poetry around the time some of my friends that read my poem couldn't see happiness in what I was writing.
2: After about six to eight weeks of this relentless treatment, he was forced to walk away.
1: And I remember one particular occasion, you know, at a prayer meeting when another person laid their hands on me and started to pray for me for a wife and that God will open my eyes so that I can have relationship with women. And I remember that very occasion that I snapped. And and I went and I ran out of that prayer space. That was deeply painful for me, and I remember it like it was yesterday.
2: In the years since, Reverend G Day has built House of Rainbow into an inclusive space for Black LGBTQI plus people in Britain and across the world too. It began as a weekly gathering for LGBTQI plus Christians in Lagos, Nigeria. Now. Operating out of London, it supports organisations in 22 countries in Africa and the Caribbean.
1: I'm not sure how well the government representatives are listening to us. I think that meeting was very much, let's just speak to them. Let's just have that meeting. I don't think that it was as impactful as I believe they would have spent time with the evangelicals. I think in the last three years, this conversation around banning Conversion therapy had been politically driven.
2: There were other survivors also attending the meeting that day. Joseph Hyman was one of the people sharing his story.
6: I was, first of all, surprised it hadn't happened before. I was surprised that it doesn't feel like it's going to happen again, that survivors weren't given sufficient time to share their stories. I was surprised at moments when stories were interrupted to ask questions that, from my point of view, were destabilising questions.
2: Joe is a Jewish LGBTQ activist and conversion therapy survivor. He was there that day to share his own story.
6: I came across it by accident. It was actually on an advertisement on a Jewish news website and it sparked my interest. I felt a sense of relief. I felt a sense of hope because... You know, perhaps I could have the life that I wanted as a straight man in a relationship with a woman and a family like everything else I saw. In the religious community that I was brought up in, there wasn't really an option for me to live a life as a gay Jewish man. This conversion therapist was the first person that I spoke to about my sexuality and about those kind of thoughts I was having in my head that no one else could know about. I began to monitor my every action, feeling, and thought to the point of obsessiveness, judging every second of every day through the lens of, are you still gay? Are you, are you having feelings for men? It just doesn't leave very much room for anything else. And it left me, by the end of it, feeling quite empty and depressed and even more alone because I didn't know where to go next.
2: Joe's conversion therapy began at 17 and lasted for another two and a half years.
6: The last straw was the fact that it actually wasn't working. I'd got to the point where I began to feel asexual and I thought, oh, it must be working. But what I see now is that moment of asexuality was more of a kind of just a lack of emotion in general, a lack of excitement about life, a lack of desire to do anything and I think that was a depressive episode. I've been privileged enough to have therapy since then, affirmative therapies, but so many other people have experiences where they end up self-harming and they end up dying of suicide and you know ending their lives because of the pain they're going through. When someone's listening to such a traumatic and vulnerable story, I think it's important that the utmost respect is given and time. I'd like to know how much time has been spent speaking to people who are against the conversion therapy ban, people like the Evangelical Alliance.
2: Coming up in just a moment, I'll ask the Evangelical Alliance directly about their meetings with the government on conversion therapy. But first,
1: Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
4: Planning for your next trip?
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: To me, this didn't seem like sufficient consultation. So I submitted a Freedom of Information request to the government to see if I could get a list of who they had consulted with so far on this topic. My initial request for this information was denied on the basis that it related to the formation of government policy, making it exempt. However, I appealed this decision and was told on the 8th of July I would have a response to my appeal within 20 days. It has now been 72 days and I've heard nothing. But one organisation who I know for sure have met with the government on this topic is the Evangelical Alliance, a group representing 2,500 churches in the UK with a significant amount of power.
7: I have only been in one meeting. I would say our team have been in, I don't even know, maybe two or three, like it's not a lot.
2: Here's Peter Linus again. You heard him in episode five of this series. He's the director of the UK's Evangelical Alliance and one of the main voices opposing a full ban. When Peter wrote to Boris Johnson arguing that the ban shouldn't include prayer, he received a response from the Prime Minister in under two weeks.
7: Best guess, honestly, it's like two or three meetings. We have not been consulted at the level we would have liked, is what we would say. But we're not, not in any conversation.
2: But it is more times, it seems than they've met with survivors. So what impression did Peter get of the government's evolving position on the topic?
7: I think initially there was a sense, this is very obvious, this needs to be banned. And I can understand that. I've had those conversations with friends and others who were like, how could you possibly be saying, slow down a little on this? And I would say, well, okay, well, what's the definition? You have somebody like Jane Ozan who's very openly and publicly saying this must include prayer and this must include gentle prayer was the phrase she used more recently.
2: This is a reference to comments made by Jane Ozanne, who argued that all prayer, including the gentle, non-coercive kind that seeks to change or suppress someone's innate sexuality or gender identity is damaging
7: and harmful. And so we're saying, well, hold on, make legislation that keeps both Jean and ourselves happy, that would seem very difficult. In countries that have done this, like Australia, Victoria, it has had implications on religious freedom and it has arguably gone too far, in fact.
2: This Australian example Peter is referring to is a piece of legislation in the southern state of Victoria. Earlier this year, after a lengthy campaign, Victorian Parliament passed the Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill.
7: We're of the view, as are a number of lawyers, that that would be a breach of human rights here. I've had sight of a legal opinion that certainly suggests that that's going to be problematic here in the UK from a human rights perspective. And I understand the government have had sight of the same opinion and they're aware of that. I wanted to find out
2: more about this, so I made a few phone calls to Australia.
4: Well, there's a couple of things, actually.
2: This is Chris Chabbs. He's an Australian LGBTQ plus activist, a survivor of conversion therapy and directly involved in the campaign for Victorian legislation. It's
4: legislation that is targeted and that actually does the job that it's intended to do. If you pass a ban, like for example, Queensland was the first state here to pass any kind of ban on conversion practices, but the ban is not at all broad. It's limited to sort of more therapeutic contexts. So it doesn't has nothing to do with sort of trying to stop anything in a religious context or anything outside of that and the problem is the absolute majority of conversion practices occur in religious spaces if you pass a ban that is not actually broad enough to capture all of the practices then you've actually got a ban that allows practices to continue in terms of religious freedom One of the more misleading claims that were made here was that the Victorian government was trying to ban prayer and ban all these other things. That's not the case. It was about trying to say that conversion practices occur in religious spaces. We all know that they occur. They're very, very common, and often they look like legitimate religious practices. That doesn't mean that all religious practices are conversion practices, It's about intent. It's about what's behind that practice. And so if you have a practice that is known to be extremely damaging and harmful, has the potential even to cause someone to take their own life, I sort of think that the argument about religious freedom is a bit moot. I think a lot of the time survivors are sort of called on to share their stories and to re-traumatise themselves, but then they're not at the table when decisions are made. So the Victorian government really listened to survivors over a number of years, actually. The process started years ago, and it's been a long process. But, yeah, we really feel that they were very keen on getting it right. They listened to our recommendations, which is why we've got such a quality legislation here.
2: Chris is familiar with the arguments made against the ban because of his own experience with a deeply religious community.
4: Here in Australia, we have so much religious freedom, you know, and I'm saying that as a Christian... And as a gay man, my whole life, it is my sexual orientation that has caused me to face discrimination in this country. A lot of the time at the hands of people of faith and particularly Christian people in my circles, it was not my Christian identity that that I faced discrimination for at all.
2: Chris personally went through seven long years of conversion therapy.
4: All of my formative years had been clouded by this ideology, which is that if you are gay, it's a broken form of sexuality. There's something that is inherently broken about it. It's not part of God's ordained structure. And I believed that. And I also believed that there must be a cause. So I remember being, you know, 10 or 11 and being absolutely terrified that there was a demon in me. I think it kind of washes over a lot of people because they go, oh yeah, demons, the kid believed it, whatever. But like, imagine being a 10 year old who has been brought up to believe that demons are real and that hell is a real place. And to think, oh my God, I've got some sort of evil spirit inside me that's causing me to be this, you know, sort of deviant or have this perversion inside me, it is absolutely terrifying. And I remember being, I mean, terrified isn't even the word, I don't know how to describe it, but it was beyond terrifying. Being Christian was my identity. It was everything. Trying to reconcile being Christian and being gay was impossible because to me it was irreconcilable. It could not be reconciled at all. I chose to go through conversion practices and I chose to put myself through seven years of basically torture. So I tried a lot of things. I tried exorcisms. I tried prayer ministries. I tried living waters. I tried, basically I tried to starve homosexuality out of myself by staying away from anyone that was male. By the end of it, by the time I was about 23, I was actually completely broken. And I was really... (sighs) I was unable to have normal relationships with people because I was so closed off and I was terrified of feeling things. Like I was scared of my own emotions. I was scared of physical touch. It didn't matter who was touching me, whether it was, you know, a friend or my mum or any kind of touch could be considered to my warped mind a sin. And so there was this constant need to block any kind of potentially sinful like feeling or sensation or whatever. And so I became very scared. I became quite disturbed even by my own bodily functions. When I was about 24, I even remember starting to Google castration and whether that was something that could even happen because, and I don't think I would have done it, but I mean at 23, to be Googling that just kind of demonstrates what kind of headspace I was in at the time.
2: Even though Chris's parents had taught him conversion ideology, they too became worried about what it had done to him.
4: Mum later on said that I'd stopped singing and I'd stopped laughing. She said that I was a shell. You were a shell of Chris. You just weren't you anymore. And Mum and Dad had watched that and had challenged their own beliefs. And so when I was 23 or 24... Mum pulled me aside one day, she took me out for coffee actually, and said to me, Chris, maybe God hasn't healed you because you're not actually sick. Maybe there's nothing actually wrong with you, which was a shock to me to hear mum say that because I, I thought we were on the same page.
2: How did it feel to hear that from her?
4: Terrifying actually. It really shook me and I started sort of quoting Bible verses and saying no, like, you know it's not like I just went, Oh, you're so right. And sort of everything fell into place. It was certainly not that I really fought against it, but I was very lucky because through talking with her helped me to start realizing that, okay, at least parts of what I'm doing here are wrong. And it's not the way that God wants me to deal with this. And so, and eventually that morphed into me being able to have more affirming theology and believing that I'm actually okay to be gay and reconciling my faith and sexuality, but it was a process of over several years, a long process. A lot of perpetrators of conversion ideology and conversion practices really believe they're doing the right thing, but it's very easy to cast those people in sort of like the villain role where they're really evil and they're out to actually harm and they want you to feel really crap about yourself. That certainly wasn't my experience. So I think beyond legislation there has to also be education and there has to be there has to be space for survivors to share their experiences really i believe that we're dealing with more of an ideological problem than anything because you can ban any practice that you want but if the ideology still persists then the practices will just morph and change to adapt around legislation there has to be a way that we can attack that ideology and show people that, hey, this is actually wrong. You know, this is what this ideology does to a person who absorbs it over a sustained period of time. I think quality legislation, really good legislation, is an essential piece of the puzzle, but it's only one part.
2: As somebody, as a survivor of conversion therapy yourself, how did you feel personally when the ban passed?
4: Oh, I was elated. I mean, i kind of was worried that it wouldn't i think there's always that fear i mean really this is has and it's been pretty much accepted that it's it's leading legislation it's world leading it's the most comprehensive legislation in the world so i'm extremely proud of it i'm proud of victoria i'm proud of the survivors that were involved in helping to shape the legislation and i'm yeah i was just absolutely ecstatic to be honest
2: In Britain, the official consultation period on this ban was due to begin in September of this year.
5: When the Queen's speech was announced and in the supporting document, they used the word coercive conversion therapy.
2: Here's Matthew Heinemann again.
5: My whole thing is, look, if all conversion therapy is coercive because of what I experienced... When I was offered counselling to try and not be gay, I had a huge decision to make. Do I risk walking away from that whole world and losing everyone I know and love? And in what way is that not coercive? That is incredibly controlling and abusive. You don't choose to grow up in a religious community, mostly. You don't get to choose what family you're born into or what church you're born into. So if by pure chance, you happen to be born into an evangelical church and you're gay and you come out, then what hope do you have?
2: After the Queen's speech, Matthew got a call from one of Liz Truss's advisors to follow up on what had been announced.
5: I said, I don't think we need to do a consultation. What you do need to do and what Liz needs to do is to sit down and listen to survivors herself and he was like, oh yes, well, you know, Kemi's already met with survivors, so I'm not sure we need to do that. It was one-hour meeting. you heard from three or four people about what they've experienced. I could find you another hundred. Like, it's not enough.
2: In Boris Johnson's publicised letter to the Evangelical Alliance he assured them that any ban would not include appropriate pastoral support and care for those who needed it. It was a swift response.
5: Peter Linus of the Evangelical Alliance writes a letter to Boris Johnson and within a month gets a handwritten letter in response. And we launch our open letter, which makes every newspaper in the country, every newspaper, every news channel ran a story on Duralipa and Elton John call for a ban on conversion therapy. It took three months for us to receive a response. It took probably eight months, nine months to actually have a meeting to hear from survivors. And it then just makes you question the will and whose voices are being heard.
2: In making this episode... We approached the Government Equalities Office in the hope that we could interview Kemi Badenoch and Liz Truss directly. Both were unavailable for interview. In response to the allegations made in this episode, a Government Equality Hub spokesperson gave the following statement. We have always listened closely to the voices of survivors and engaged with organisations that represent them. Our ban will place how best to protect and support them at its heart we have collected a wide range of evidence, which we will publish alongside the consultation on proposals to ban the practice. As a global leader on LGBT rights, this government is committed to ending the practice of conversion therapy.
5: Do I believe that LGBT people should still have pastoral support and prayer? Of course, but if that pastoral support is telling them that they're damaged and broken and sinful and they're going to go to hell if they don't change, then of course that's wrong. I actually think that the majority of people of faith would absolutely agree that you should not force LGBT people to try and change and that that's nonsense and it doesn't work. But unfortunately, the people with the loudest voice are the ones who are heard. I actually think the fact that then they're suggesting that God is in on it too makes it even more abusive because... You know, prayer is not just spoken words, you're communicating with God. For someone who actually does have a faith to believe that God can change me and we're praying to God to try and change me, I just think it it creates a whole other spiritual abuse as well. Like, if we're willing to accept that talk therapies can be harmful, that those words spoken can be harmful and are the equivalent of verbal abuse, then spoken prayer is the exact same. Just because it ends in Amen does not mean that it's suddenly free game.
2: Listening to Thinking Straight, a podcast series brought to you by subscribers to the Times and Sunday Times. I'm journalist Emily Sargent. The producer of this series is Leona Hamid. Editorial Support by Asia Fuchs. The series is made in collaboration with Story Hunter. The executive producer for Story Hunter is Kirsty Hunter. The executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Poppy Damon. Sound design is by Vulcan Kiseltuk. You can find all 7 episodes of this series by searching Thinking Straight wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been affected by any of the issues in today's episode, you can contact Samaritans on 116 123 or Switchboard, the LGBT helpline on 0300 Double three zero zero six three zero. Open from ten am until ten pm every day. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening.